on this Christmas Sunday evening, I would like particularly to look at one phrase that we read concerning Simeon in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Luke 2, 25. I'll read the whole verse first. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it's that phrase, the consolation of Israel. If you've got a new King James, as I have, you will probably find the word consolation there is, has a capital letter for C. Uh, because this is indeed a description of Messiah, a description of Christ who has come and is there as the other chapters in Luke, in early chapters in Luke make clear. It's Jesus himself. What a, a rich What a lovely description this is of Jesus. He is the consolation of Israel. Israel. And we see that these words come come about Simeon, and then we have the song of Simeon, which starts in verse 29, the so-called nunc dimittis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And Simeon, as we are told, was an old man, And he was waiting uh, for the consolation of Israel. He had uh, an expectancy, an eager anticipation and longing for the coming of Messiah. And in that sense, he joined with a few. There weren't that many, it seems, at this time. But he joins with a few others, uh, as we see in verse 38 of this chapter, those who looked for redemption in Israel. And that expression, looked for, is perhaps a bit weak as it comes to us. It means that they were eagerly anticipating, they were eagerly longing for the the coming of the Lord's Messiah. And we see the character expressed of Simeon in his words and in his reaction when finally the child Jesus comes into the temple brought by Uh, Mary and Joseph he takes him up in his arms and he blesses God and said Lord now lettest thou I'm giving the AV version uh, Lord now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace now I'm ready to go I'm ready to die his longing has been rewarded with a sight of the saviour and the Holy Spirit had already told him that he wouldn't see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And now it has happened. What an example this man is to us to long for Christ. What an example he is to us that this should be the great purpose of our lives on earth. This is why we're here on earth. It's a time in which we must seek the Lord until we find him and particularly seek him in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And what a blessed aspect this is of every Christmas season and for that matter of every Easter season that comes round because it concentrates our attention once more upon the person and work of Christ. And we should be like the bride in the Song of Solomon that we should be seeking the one whom we love. And when we find him, as the bride says, I held him and would not let him go until I have brought him to the house of my mother. 
and into the chamber of who conceived me, that is, into the church. And is that our aspiration tonight? Is that how we've come into this congregation tonight, just longing for the Lord Jesus and longing when we have him to not let him go and then to bring him, as it were, into the congregation every time we meet, to bring Christ with us in communion with him and fellowship with him. What a change that would make to our worship and to our hearing of God's word. Now, Simeon, although he lived in a very difficult time, uh, a lonely time for a true believer, he had that kind of communion with God and it was, it was a blessing to him to be able to take the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus, in his arms. And it's a picture, really, of faith as well as of that physical happening, to have Christ in your arms by faith. That's what happens when we become true believers. It's as though we embrace Christ. We take him in our arms. Uh, we take him for ourselves. Is that something that has happened in your experience? The gospel goes into all the world and it tells us that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Well, that by way of general introduction, but I want to come back for this, to this phrase of <clears throat> the Messiah, this description of him. It's one that's not that frequent in Scripture, although the truth of it is frequent in Scripture, the, the consolation of Israel. <clears throat> First, we need to understand what is here meant by Israel. Quite clearly, it has an immediate application to the nation of Israel itself, to the old covenant people of God uh, until the days in which Messiah came, the people with whom God dealt and through whom he worked. So there was a physical, historical outworking uh, of, of this phrase. But there's clearly a bigger reference because as we come into the New Testament, we discover the word Israel has a wider application. So, for example, in the beginning of the letter of James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes his letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, he's clearly not writing to Old Testament Israel here. And he's writing, as we read, the letter to the Christian church, to believers. And so he's using the thought of the elect people of God, the 12 tribes, as a description of the true church of Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. And we get a similar widening of its meaning in the end of the letter to the Galatians, Paul letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, as he said, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And he's talking about the fact that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. It, in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not Jewish. What matters is that you're born again, that you are a new creation. This is the Israel of God. And so we see in this phrase, consolation of Israel, that Christ is the consoler and the comfort of all who believe upon him, of all his people. So what does it mean to have this 
consolation. Well, firstly, if Jesus is your saviour, it means that you have comfort amidst all the woes of living in a fallen world. We're in a world in which sin abounds. We're in a world that has inherited and entered into the transgression of Adam and Eve. That sin which they committed has been imputed to all mankind and we have the root of sin in our nature by birth as in Adam all die. And yet for those who will put their trust in Christ, Christ now becomes a comfort, a consolation. The word that's used here is also the same root word as is used for the expression concerning the Holy Spirit, that he is the paraclete, the comforter. Remember that when Jesus was about to depart this world, to be arrested, to be tried, to be crucified, and his disciples were really distraught at the thought of losing him, especially in such a way that he began to comfort them. And one of his promises was this, that I will send you another comforter, someone else like me, who like me will be a comforter, a consoler. And so that was his comfort as he was about to depart. But there were many other woes and trials In those days, particularly for the disciples, there were the woes of just living under the Roman occupation, something of the oppression of that, and then those that made political capital out of that, for example, the Herod family. And then there were those who were supposed to care for Israel, the the shepherds of the sheep, as it were, the Pharisees and scribes, but they were uncaring, they were legalistic, they were hard-hearted, Uh, by and large, and external. Uh, They were not shepherds. They were those that fleeced the sheep, really. And what what a woe to live uh, under such uh, a state authority and under such a church authority. And yet, for those who trusted in Christ in the days of Simeon, Jesus became a consolation. He became a source of comfort and renewal amidst the darkness of state and church, as it were. And that's a reminder to us. uh, We may feel that there are many, many dark things in our world. Uh, We may think, and, and probably very rightly so, there are many things in our society that are dark and that uh, bring hurt and suffering and injustice and there's so, such evidence of suffering all around us, some of it uh, self-inflicted, really. And yet it's there. It's, it cannot be escaped. It's just there. And, of course, there's the greatest woe of all, our own sin, our own lostness. This is all part of living in a fallen world. We, we come with ourselves, as it were, into this world. And it's that particular aspect that Isaiah preaches a message of consolation to in the days uh, 700 years before Christ as he was told by the Lord comfort yes comfort my people says your God speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins and then we come straight into a prophecy of 
John the Baptist, concerning John the Baptist and concerning Messiah himself. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. But it was a word of comfort. The comfort was this, that her iniquity is pardoned. That the warfare between God and man has been ended. Reconciliation has been accomplished. And we know how that has taken place now in the light of the New Testament. That Christ has died for our sins. That he's accomplished reconciliation through his blood upon the cross. And so he becomes the comforter of his people. And instead of being against us, he becomes for us. And we read... A bit later in Isaiah 40, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. If you're a believer, that is the description of God's relationship with you. He carries you in his arms. Just imagine the the gentleness and the compassion and the tenderness of a mother with her child, with her suckling child. And he gently leads the lambs. He gently carries them in his bosom. This is the description of almighty God in relationship with his people. He is the consolation of Israel. In the middle of a a hard and harsh world and all kinds of injustice and oppression and all kinds of disappointment and frustration, And that's the world we're in, is it not? Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upwards, says the wise man. That's that's right. We're in such a world. We cannot cocoon ourselves from all the issues of health uh, and, and all the issues of unfairness and just being in a world and being in a state which is under the wrath of God because of the sin of mankind. How can we get through it? How can we live In a world like this, well, here's the answer. We have a consoling saviour if Jesus Christ is your saviour. Once you were an orphan in God's world, wandering around, not knowing where you were going. Once you were, whether or not you realised it or recognised it, once you were alienated from him. Once you were, in fact, not his people. But now, through Christ, you are his people. Through Christ, you have become part of the family. Through Christ, you have been reconciled to him. And you have a consoler. You have a counselor. You have a tender shepherd. So it means comfort amidst the woes of a fallen world. Secondly, as we think of Jesus as the consolation of Israel, we see it means comfort amidst all the apparent hopelessness of living in this world. All the apparent hopelessness. And I'm using that word deliberately, hope hyphen less, without hope. Where's it all going? Where's it going personally? Where's it going nationally? Where's it going globally? Such hopelessness is there not. Some people scared out of their wits, perhaps Uh, rightly so in certain aspects concerning what's going on in the climate uh, and in the world economy. These are things, of course, that uh, should concern us. And maybe the more you know, the more concerned you become and, and you become 
lacking in hope. And it must have seemed hopeless in Isaiah's day, let alone Simeon's day. In Isaiah's day, when he had to prophesy that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were going to come in and to ravage Judah. And he was prophesying beyond that event, to bring comfort beyond that event, before it had even happened. We learned something about God's love in that matter. And yet he had to prophesy of these dark days. And yet he could say, comfort my people, saith your God. And Simeon's day, when he has to say things like this to Mary, that, uh, that your child will, uh, that, that he is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. And in fact, your own heart will be pierced by a sword. He's looking forward to the cross. And one could just say, well, this is hopeless. And do we not feel something of that if we are Christians, if we know Jesus as our saviour and we see, for example, our society increasingly godless, increasingly turned aside from God, passing laws that are defiant of his truth and defiant of his standards and forgetting even on Christmas uh, Christmas and the other Christian festivals which used to be so important in our nation, forgetting him, and we might feel that there is no hope. And yet we find that he is the God of consolation, the God of hope. And we find when we come to the scriptures, they're just massively full of hope. I could turn you to many scriptures. Let me just take a selection. Let's try start starting with chapter 11. Just see what it says in chapter 11. Perhaps we've heard the first half of the chapter concerning the peace that the gospel will bring between ferocious enemies, the wolf and the, le- uh, and the lamb, the leopard and the goat. But read on in that chapter and you shall see in that second half of the chapter, you'll see how it prophesies a second exodus, a second coming out of Slavery and bondage, this time not from Egypt, but rather from a whole lot of nations, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, all the nations around. This time not just Israel being rescued out of Egypt, but this time God laying his hand on places like Edom and Moab and Ammon. And God bringing people dry shod over the river. It's all, of course, metaphoric. It's speaking of a second exodus. It's speaking of a new redemption. It's speaking of the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. That's our great hope if we are believers. That's our consolation. We don't know God's timings. We don't know when, of course not. It's not given to us to know when. But you come, for example, to Isaiah chapter 49. And you read in verse 14, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. There's a sense of hopelessness in the people. This is in the midst of their deportation and exile. But back comes the answer. 
Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And then comes that huge prophecy concerning God bringing his people from the ends of the earth. Verse 18, lift up your eyes, look around and see all these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. We're thinking this morning, just for a moment with the children of the final prayer of David. Psalm 72. It ends with the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. What are these prayers uttered 3,000 years ago? David long gone. And the Apostle Peter would point out that, that he was buried. He was a man like us, he was buried. And yet his prayer lives on. His prayer that God would cause the whole earth to be filled with his glory. His prayer that the name of Messiah will endure forever and continue as long as the sun. His prayer that the whole world would know the kingdom of Christ, the poor and needy be saved, and so on. Now David didn't know the when of that. And maybe he would have been distressed to think it would be thousands and thousands of years before the answer to that prayer. And yet he lived in the hope of it being answered. And so he could end his prayer, Amen and Amen. In other words, so be it, so be it. And then the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. It's a tender, consoling hope for a grieving people of God amidst the woes and the hopelessness, the apparent hopelessness of this fallen world. We get the same tender note in Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, Now, not so much a prediction as as an actuality or a very soon-to-be-realized actuality of the deportation. And in Jeremiah 31, uh, we've heard in verse 15 a prophecy of uh, Rachel weeping for her children, of, of the devastation that goes on in the regions around Jerusalem, Bethlehem and so on, as the Babylonians come in with all their cruelty and take off with the people, the mothers, the children, And remember that that's used, that particular word in Matthew chapter 2 concerning Herod's destruction of the children. But listen to what God says as he he says, well, I know you're going to be doing this. I know you're going to be weeping for your children, refusing to be comforted. But then God says, thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, your work shall be rewarded. There is hope in your future. Your children shall come back to their own border. In other words, the deportation will be reversed. Such a thing has never been heard of in the ancient world. That the deported people should be returned. But we can see beyond such a prophecy to the new covenant day in which we live. And the fact that the days are coming when God 
will make a new covenant. And when he will write his laws upon the minds of his people and upon their hearts. And they shall no more teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And they shall come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and sit at the kingdom of God. This is the consolation of Israel. Are you dwelling in that comfort, my brother, my sister? Are you a brother and sister in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you knowing true consolation? And then thirdly, as we see in Simeon's case, this is comfort, whether in life or in death, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when he had the consolation of Israel in his arms, he was able to say, I'm ready to die. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Death, there's nothing you can take beyond the grave, is there? And all those things that give comfort to us in this life, some of them indeed good things from God, and yet so so all of it, it'll be left behind. And all we will have as we walk to the valley of the shadow of death, if Christ is our saviour, all we will have is the rod and the staff to comfort us, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, the angels of God to bear us into the bosom of the Lord, into into paradise. It's comfort when Christ is your saviour and you're ready to die and you're not terrified by death because you know him in whom you have believed. The child of God, says Spurgeon, runs to his father and expects consolation only from the Lord's hands. When we come to die, that'll be our consolation, that Jesus is with us in death. It's consolation in life, it's consolation in death. Simeon says, you are letting your servant depart, not in terror, not in abject fear and a sense of great failure and disappointment, but you're letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Is that your experience? If it is your experience, how blessed you are, how rich and how comforting is this phrase concerning Jesus, the consolation of Israel.